Greetings, everyone. Welcome to History Factory Plugged In, the podcast at the nexus of history and business. I'm Jason Dressel, and thanks for tuning in. Now, as we head toward the end of January, I know some of you out there have sworn off alcohol and are aiming to dry out after the holiday season, and uh, I hope that's going well for you. I, too, decided to take some time off the sauce, and I didn't have a drink until, I don't know, maybe January 3rd, 4th? And uh, the sauce is our topic of the show, because as you may know, 100 years ago this month, the Prohibition era in America began. So imagine if that happened today. Imagine if we all got back from the holidays, got back into the routine of regular life, and alcohol was suddenly outlawed. That would give a new meaning to going dry in January, now wouldn't it? But as you're going to learn, America did not go dry during Prohibition, and if anything, it might have become a lot wetter. But it didn't happen the way you might think if your image of Prohibition is speakeasies and Hollywood's depiction of the Roaring Twenties. So uh, to learn more about how Prohibition came to be and what its legacy is, we're going to talk to two people with unique perspectives on the topic. First, we're going to talk with Daniel Okrent the author of Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition, one of the definitive histories of Prohibition. And uh, then we're going to talk to uh, my friend Macaulay Adams, who is the brand manager of Brown Foreman, uh, one of the world's largest and most admired spirits companies. So let's jump right into my conversation with Daniel first. Uh, Daniel Okrent was the first public editor of the New York Times and is the prize-winning author of six books, including his latest, The Guarded Gate, which examines the bigotry, eugenics, and the law that kept two generations of Jews, Italians, and other Europeans out of America. Daniel's previous book, Last Call, was not only recognized by the American Historical Association as the year's best book on American history when it came out in 2011, It was also an integral source for Ken Burns' documentary series, Prohibition, which he was also the senior creative consultant of. Daniel, thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And, and, and first, let, let's just start right out of the gate with what, what from your experience in, in writing this book and, and uncovering kind of all these interesting insights about the Prohibition era, what did you find to be one of the most kind of misunderstood uh, elements of this time in our history? Well, I think the most misunderstood by the largest number of people is what I call the uh, um, untouchables version of events which is to say that Hollywood has given us a sense of prohibition of what life was like in prohibition and what it was like to be a prohibition officer and who the mobsters were, and it's a total distortion of what actually happened. I think that the key example of that is this sense that you get in many American cities now where the idea of prohibition-style bars, speakeasy bars, is uh, for some reason popular right now. Uh, The notion that they were hidden and that you needed passwords, that you could only get in if you knew somebody, when in fact by 1924 and 1925 in the major cities of the East and the upper Midwest, um, they were operating totally openly. Um, you could, it was said in Detroit, for instance, the editor of the Detroit Free Press said it was very hard to get a drink in, uh, in, in Detroit during Prohibition. You had to walk about 10 feet and really shout loudly so the bartender could hear you above the crowd. 
and H.L. Mencken said about Baltimore, uh, yeah, it was tough to get a drink in Baltimore unless you knew a cop uh, or a judge, which is to say everybody was in, in the big cities, in on the game of breaking the prohibition laws. Yeah. And would you say it was easier uh, to get a drink uh, or to operate as as an establishment in the Prohibition era than it is now? Well, yes. In fact, that's uh, the great irony of Prohibition. It became harder to get a drink after liquor was legalized in 1933 than it had been during during Prohibition. Uh, During Prohibition, um, if you were breaking the law, as so many thousands did uh, in selling alcohol, you did it, as I mentioned, by usually bribing the necessary officials, and it didn't cost much to bribe them at all. Um, And then, because there were no regulations and no rules, uh, then you could sell liquor to anybody at any time. You know, if a 15-year-old kid walked into a bar at 7 o'clock in the morning and wanted uh, a, a, a slug of whiskey, no problem. Um, but once you have repeal in 1933 and the 21st Amendment, the repeal amendment assigns the responsibility for liquor laws to these individual states, you have in each of those states a regulatory environment of closing hours and age limits and whether you can have a liquor establishment, an alcohol establishment near a church or near a school. Uh, and the owners of the, the um, legal uh, premises that were selling alcohol, they had licenses that were very, very valuable and it would be terrible for them to lose them. So they were careful, and we see uh, even today the results of that 1933 action where uh, we have liquor laws that are rather seriously enforced in many states. Yeah. Now, the, the 18th Amendment, correct me if I'm wrong, but it basically outlawed the manufacturing, distribution, and selling of alcohol, which included beer, wine, and spirits, correct? That's right, but the definition of alcoholic beverage was anything with over one-half of 1% alcohol by volume. So, Got in it. fact, it would have made, you know, took it, taking it seriously, that sauerkraut would have been illegal. But, uh, yeah, beer, 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 wine, and liquor. Yeah. Well, that, that's but interesting. Not, but not, it was not against law to buy a drink or to drink, um, and that was for very savvy reasons. The people who put together the Volstead Act, the Enforcement Act for Prohibition, realized that if it was against the law to drink, then nobody would be, able, nobody would be willing to testify against their suppliers. Where if the, whereas if the drinking or the purchase of alcohol was still legal, then the person who bought it would not be putting himself or herself in an incriminating position by ratting on someone else. Yeah, interesting. Was, so if you, if you were you know, a person who enjoyed drinking alcohol in 1921, 1920, whatever, it wasn't necessarily difficult to, to continue to drink. Uh, but what, what was the impact, though, on the manufacturing, uh, on, on obviously the industry? Um, because well, it went underground. Were, were, they, were they also, because they were not necessarily as open as the, as the, the saloons, correct? Well, it's surprising. There were, there were three exceptions to the, uh, uh, the Volstead Act. Uh, it was legal to 
to make alcohol from fruit, from your own fruit in your own home. Uh, that was a way to buy off the farmers of the Midwest who had been making apples, uh, hard cider for uh, decades, even centuries. Uh, it was legal for religious purposes, which enabled the Catholic Church and Orthodox Jews to continue to get the sacramental wines, and that became a, a very corrupt industry on its own. And finally, it was legal for medicinal purposes. And I'm looking at a bottle I have in front of me in my uh, office, a uh, special old reserve made by the Jim Bean Company for medicinal purposes only. Um, and it's a bottle of, uh, of 90 proof bourbon. Um, yeah. You could go to uh, a doctor and get a prescription every two weeks, take it to your local pharmacy and get yourself a bottle of a pint of, of whiskey. And that was throughout Prohibition. And did, so as, as big spirits, became big pharma uh, did did their did their sales suffer yes of course they did to, to a degree but people found their ways around it uh, Jim Beam as I mentioned was a very very big supplier uh, producer and supplier of so-called medicinal liquor another example was um, a man named George Remus who was probably uh, the most inventive uh, of the illegal liquor suppliers in the U.S. Uh, he had two businesses. Um, first, he bought the Jack Daniels distillery that had moved from Tennessee to St. Louis when Tennessee put in their their prohibition laws about 10 years before prohibition. Um, Remus bought that distillery. He also owned a, a pharmacy distribu- distribution company, and he would legally take liquor out of the distillery as so-called medicinal liquor, and then his own men would hijack his own trucks to divert a portion of that into the speakeasy market. Wow. Unique twist on vertical integration. Got it. (laughs) Yeah. So how did this happen? I mean, obviously there was the temperance movement, which which lasted for decades, but what were the tipping points that finally sort of sent this over the top? I mean, obviously there had been, you know, pockets of the of, of American society since the beginning that were uh, very against uh, alcohol and saw it as a negative effect on uh, on American society. But what were some of the tipping points that finally enabled the 18th Amendment to happen? Uh, there were two key tipping points. Uh, one happens in 1913 with the adoption of the 16th Amendment authorizing a federal income tax. And that gives the federal government a source of revenue to replace the revenue that would be lost if liquor were made illegal until the income tax. The single largest domestic source of revenue for the federal government was the tax on alcohol. Uh, and the prohibition forces, the temperance forces, realized you couldn't just get rid of that and not and have the government not have any revenue. So once the the income tax is established, suddenly that's the, the, the sign that says, okay, we can go for the big deal. And then the clincher comes during World War One, when, uh, as it happens, all, uh, virtually all of the beer, uh, the brewers in the U.S. were German. Uh, many of them still had family in Germany. Many of them had investments in Germany, and they were. It was very easy to accuse them of being collaborationists, of collaborating with the Kaiser to defeat the American army. And the beer they were producing was sapping the strength of the American fighting man. Uh, It was consuming grain that could be used to make bread to feed the starving Belgians. It was uh, uh, the perfect sort of jingoistic charge that could be made to demonize these people, and that's what puts it over finally in 1917, 1918. 
Yeah, and then just for good measure, they uh, made the law so even 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 beloved sauerkraut was illegal. <laughs> yeah, but nobody really enforced it on sauerkraut. Of course. <laughs> so, sure. yeah. Well, no one apparently enforced it on uh, on booze and beer either. <laughs> yeah, no. there was now, enforcement. It just was never effective. Never effective. Yeah, were, were, were there specific areas of the country that that it was more effective? I mean, you mentioned uh, yes, in the in, 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 in the lower Midwest, uh, the, the, the prohibition movement. Uh, was really a creation of Methodist and Baptist ministers in the Midwest, also in Western New York State. Uh, you know, this I would say that there was a belt that led from the so-called burnt-over district of Upper New York State uh, to Missouri uh, and into the South, uh, where Methodist and Baptist um, influence, political influence, was very strong, and it was harder to get get it there, um, but never impossible. And certainly never impossible for people who had any money at all. If you read in a book like uh, Sinclair Lewis's Babbitt, uh, they're drinking at every time everybody gets anybody gets together uh, in their their imaginary uh, midwestern city of Zenith, um, and that was characteristic. Uh, people of the upper middle class, particularly, never had any difficulty, no matter where they were. Yeah, and when we, when we think about the iconography of the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties. There's obviously, you know, it's party time, uh, strong economy, uh, you know, loosening of, uh, you know, previous kind of social customs, kind of the decaying of sort of the the Victorian era, um, uh, you know, the, the speakeasies and, and the mafia, as you mentioned. How 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 do you think that decade? And how would America may have evolved differently if prohibition hadn't occurred? Well, it's, it's interesting. I certainly, when I began working on Last Call, uh, I had this very notion in mind that you know, here's how alcohol changes things so radically, or the absence of alcohol, illegal alcohol, changes things so radically. Uh, but then it didn't take me long into my research to realize exactly the same thing that was going on with the flapper movement and with the uh, the rise of jazz and all those roaring twenty things we think about. It was happening in the UK as well, uh, and the UK didn't have prohibition. Uh, at, at all. I think that what we think of as that prohibition culture, a lot of it was really reaction to World War I and the introduction of a new modern social order as a result of the disillusion from World War I. Now, that's not to say that there weren't some very specific changes. Uh, until, world, until prohibition, uh, men and women in America did not drink together in public. The saloon was a male-only place. The only play, time you would find uh, men and women drinking together in public would be in the uh, expensive hotel restaurants uh, for the very rich. Uh, But once liquor became illegal and the speakeasy culture began to flourish, then all bets were off and it became kind of exciting for this post-war generation to let's change things. And, you know, women would go into the speakeasies with the men, men and women drinking together. And if you have men and women drinking together, soon you're going to have music. And thus the American nightclub, the cabaret is born and jazz spreads. So it did have some very real effects. But I think that our imagined version of the Roaring Twenties uh, was only to a degree influenced by prohibition. Interesting. And how did how did how did it end? Uh, what 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 were the kind of key key things that enabled uh, enabled the uh, the country to to repeal it? Well, the, it's interesting that uh, just as it came in because of the income tax and the way it went out because of the income tax, there were other factors as well. But the key factor 
It was the onset of the, the Depression, the market crash of 1929, the terrible economic cataclysm that follows. The federal government's uh, collections from income tax uh, dropped by 30% in between 1929 and 1933. Uh, the collections on capital gains tax disappeared entirely. The government was running on fumes. Um, there was not enough money to operate at the barest level, much less to do anything in terms of economic stimulus to get the economy going again. And even some of the most ardent supporters of prohibition realized that if we don't come up with an alternative source of tax revenue, we're in really, really deep trouble. And they said, uh, some of them reluctantly and some of them very excitedly, I know where we can get the revenue again. Let's bring back the tax on alcohol, which means making alcohol legal. And did, did that work or had the illegal infrastructure um, that had been set essentially or did, did I mean did, did it actually work or did the yeah, it worked. Continue in, the, to in the first year of just the first year of beer which comes back before the Volstead the, the Act has changed to allow beer in in uh, March of 1933 uh, prohibition itself doesn't end until December of 33 but in that first year um, a quarter of a billion dollars came in on beer tax alone so the money did come in and then secondarily the illegal industry in many cases became legal. The same people who were distributing alcohol illegally during Prohibition, uh, suddenly they you know, changed the look on their face and the name on the door, and they were in the legal business, and it was a lot easier to operate legally than illegally. Uh, the outstanding example of that is the Bronfman family of Seagram's, a uh, Canadian family uh, that had made a fortune and built up a huge business by exporting uh, illegally, exporting liquor into the U.S. during Prohibition. Uh, and then the minute the Prohibition is over, they're already bottling legal liquor in Ohio or uh, in Illinois, where they had bought the largest distillery in the Midwest and spread from there. And what did the industry look like after Prohibition? I mean, were there fewer well, companies? The, 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 it began the uh, uh, concentration that continues to this day. It wasn't nearly as intense, but I'm not remembering the numbers precisely, but there had been something like 30,000 breweries in the United States before Prohibition. Every town had one. The cities had many, many of them. Uh, after Prohibition, there were about 1,000. And then, of course, it's just wow. uh, dwindled to a handful, not counting, the, of course, the uh, craft breweries today. Um, the liquor industry, the, the hardcore uh, liquor industry, uh, was a little bit slower in coming back and consolidating and, and uh, uh and, and setting up the you know the proper distribution systems, but by the end of the 30s, um, it was pretty much where it had been before. Uh, again, as in the brewing industry, a few firms like Seagram's, Shenley's, a few others rose to become the giants in the industry. What do you think of as sort of the moral of the story of prohibition? Don't do it again. Um, <laughs> the the. the it, it was such a clear failure in so many ways uh, that I think that the likelihood of anything like that happening again in the U.S. or in any other Western country is, is uh, diminishingly small uh, and visibly uh, to the point of invisibility. Um, the, the, the moral lesson behind it, if it is a moral one, maybe it's a political one, is that I think that the prohibition established that you cannot legislate against human desire. And if human beings want something, they're going to find a way to get it. The best parallel, of course, is prostitution, 
which has been outlawed or attempts have been made to outlaw it in every country since time immemorial, and in no country has that succeeded. People want it, and they will find a way to get it, and that's what happened during Prohibition. Mm. Are there any other parallels you see between Prohibition and the temperance movement and, uh, and uh, today? Yeah, and this is obviously changing, but at the time that my book was published, when Last Call was published in, in, uh, in 2011, the uh, legalization of marijuana had not yet occurred in Colorado, Washington, or any other state. Uh, but you saw the parallel happening, which is to say when it was first on the ballot in California, I believe that was 2008 or 2010, the the measure that almost passed but did not, uh, but it was the one that sort of was the starting gun for the uh, marijuana legalization movement. The bill that was on the ballot, on the referendum ballot in California, was entitled A Measure to Tax and Regulate Marijuana. Not to legalize marijuana, but to tax it and regulate it. Of course, you had to legalize it to make it possible. And that tax word is critical. We've reached a point, or we have reached a point, I guess we're still there in this country, where nobody wants tax increases. But we're happy to let individuals have tax increases if they want to do it as a user fee. So, yeah, let's bring back a tax. I don't drink, so I don't have to pay the tax. He drinks. Let him pay the tax, and then my roads will be improved. So it's a very similar uh, to the uh, uh, the need for tax revenue that arose when the Depression hit in 29. Mm. Cool. Well, let's leave it there, Daniel. Really appreciate uh, really appreciate your time and insights, and uh, we hope to have you back. Thank you. So, as my conversation with Daniel revealed, the Prohibition era was not only a failure, it also wasn't a time in which alcohol really went underground in the kind of secretive speakeasies that we now see being a trendy gimmick for cocktail bars. They were right out in the open. You didn't need the secret password for the unmarked door in an alley. In fact, it's been reported that there were more than 30,000 speakeasies in New York City alone. And in Washington, D.C., members of Congress had their own bootlegger, known as the mysterious man in the green hat, who made about 25 deliveries per day to the Capitol. Maybe now that marijuana is basically legal in D.C., that could be a new entrepreneurial opportunity for someone. With President Trump's trial and Senate underway, I bet there's a lot of members of Congress who would love a delivery from a man in the green hat right now. And remember, it was never illegal to consume alcohol, only to manufacture, sell, and distribute it. So as almost always seems to be the case, those with resources and connections were only minorly inconvenienced. But it was clearly a nuisance for the industry. And to that point, uh, we talked to our friend Macaulay Adams at Brown Foreman. Brown Foreman, of course, is the company that has iconic products and brands like Jack Daniels, Woodford Reserve, and Old Forester, to name a few. And Macaulay is not only Brown Foreman's brand manager, she's also a direct descendant of founder George Garvin Brown. So let's listen in on my conversation with Macaulay. Macaulay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Absolutely, Jason. Thanks for having me. And first of all, happy 150th anniversary to Brown Foreman. Thank you very much. Yes, um, 150 is kind of a big deal. It's a lot easier to say and spell than sesquicentennial, so we'll keep it at 150. But um, <laughs> yeah, we're really excited that it's actually here. So I couldn't believe that it, it's January 1st finally hit. 
and 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 we can only assume that uh that the the occasion of the 150th is uh is, is a little uh, a little less uh anxious as it was 100 years ago when Brown Foreman had its 50th anniversary and uh celebrated that impressive milestone with the uh with the concurrent uh implementation of the 18th amendment which of course uh yep. Uh, potentially created a little bit of an existential threat to uh, to to the company. Um, so as you think about the as you think about the prohibition, what how how was it kind of looked back on by by Brown Foreman? What what was that period like for the organization? Understanding, of course, that uh, that you were not not with the company at that time. No, not yet. <laughs> um, no, it's um, it is pretty. It, well, first of all, it's it's pretty amazing that it's been 100 years, and I guess tomorrow officially is the 100th year that the entire nation goes dry because um, prohibition started um, earlier and ended later, depending upon what state you were in. So if you were in Tennessee, you were dry for a really, really long time, like mm-hmm. 30 years. Um, Kentucky, we didn't have it quite as long. But, um, yeah, to think that Brown Foreman – you know, which is a big company um, now, you know, celebrating our 150th year, and we've obviously been around for a while, um, to think that we were going into our 50th year as a corporation and going into nationwide prohibition um, was, uh, I would imagine, pretty scary um, for for the, the the people who were working here and the, the people who were running this company at the time, um, to think that, you know, they had made it 50 years and, you know, maybe at that time was, was a pretty – pretty amazing feat um you know from an ownership standpoint we were in our second generation of of brown ownership in fact our founder had had died like three years before um but um yeah i can't imagine what what that would look like when we think about you know where we are at at year 150 we're, we're pretty excited about um you know what our future looks like and so i can't imagine what it would be like going into 50 years and and not being quite sure how much longer you were going to be around yeah. The um and what what are the what's kind of the origin story of Brown Foreman? How did the company uh, get its start back in 1870? Yeah, so um a pharmaceutical salesman uh originally from a little town in central Kentucky called Munfordville, Kentucky. Um his name was George Garvin Brown. Um he moved up to Louisville to finish high school um in the kind of early to mid 1860s. Um, and ironically never finished high school, but he started working for a, um, a druggist or a pharmacy company, um, with a a guy named Henry Chambers and basically was selling whiskey for medicinal purposes. Um, and at the time you could only get whiskey in typically, but, um, like jugs or barrels. So you didn't really know exactly what was inside those barrels other than, you know, just based on the, on the vendor's reputation. Yeah. And hopefully it was a good one um, because, you know, it's something that you're, you're consuming. You're hoping that it's, uh, that it's safe to consume. But at that time, the, um, I don't even know if the FDA was really around. Um, and it certainly wasn't regulating um, beverage alcohol at all. And so um, regulations didn't hit until the late 1800s. But, um, yeah, uh, George Brown decided, you know, he was getting a lot of calls for higher quality and consistent um, quality from his um, from his clients, and so he decided to put bourbon in a or whiskey in a, a barrel. Or excuse me, in a bottle. And so um, Old Forester, which is our founding brand, um, is is America's first bottled bourbon. Um, and 
I think there were others who had attempted this before. I've done some studies and saw that there was a distillery, I think, in Pennsylvania that had tried it. But um, honestly, it was just expensive. Um, and I think it was hard to get good quality glass and, and to, to make it as consistent as, as Brown was, was hoping to do. And, and thankfully, he was able to, I guess, maybe it was the right place at the right time. And, and so that's, that's how we started. Um, and it's just grown from there. I mean, early on, we, um, we didn't distill. Uh, we were what's called rectifiers or blenders. Um, we, we purchased our first distillery in 1901. Um, but before then, we were getting our, our whiskey from three different distilleries in Kentucky, um, one called Atherton, one called Melwood, and one called Mattingly. And it was the Mattingly distillery that we ended up purchasing in the early 1900s. And so um, Old Forester, which is a brand that, that we're still very proud of, uh, we just built a new distillery for Old Forester just a couple of years ago. Um, being our first brand, um, it was made from three, basically uh, the consistent flavor that we had back then that we have today, um, it started uh, from three different distilleries in Kentucky. And so, um, and that's honestly how most bourbons are, unless you hear something that says specifically single barrel, um, most bourbons and whiskeys um, that, that are on the market even today are blends of something, not necessarily from different distilleries, um, but from different uh, batches or different barrels. And so right. um, that's how Old Forester started. And um, also in that, we, we, uh, we, we sold and marketed other brands, a lot of brands that don't exist anymore. Um, but Old Forester has been the one that's, that's been around uh, with us since the beginning. So it's been around before, during, and after Prohibition. Yeah. So Old Forester is – Brown Foreman, it's both a, a 150th of the company as well as a 150th of the, uh, of the original flagship the brand. brand. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so it's funny to think uh, clearly the quality control and regulatory practices around apparently pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical salespeople, as well yep. as the spirits industry, has clearly improved over the last 150 years. Um, yeah, thankfully, I guess. But yeah. It's, yeah, right. But it's, <laughs> yeah, but it's, uh, it's, it's interesting and, and probably not that unusual uh, uh, that the origins of the company was in essentially – uh, medicinal uh, or, or pharmaceuticals, um, because mm-hmm. I think then during the prohibition, uh, obviously one of the ways that uh, many people were getting around uh, the issue of being prohibited from drinking alcohol was through uh, doctor's notes ostensibly and it being uh, sold as, as medical as medicine. Um, yeah. And was that the case with Brown Foreman? It was. It was. So um, yeah. So the com- country goes dry in 1920. Um, it was actually a couple years before was the Food and Drug Act, and so a lot of a lot of brands were already shuttered or are closing down because um, we weren't able to produce whiskey um, or, or liquor of any kind as early as like 1917, 1918, um, and so we at that time um, that's when we shuttered our distillery that we had bought in 1901. We called it the St. Mary's of the Mattingly Distillery. Um, and so what we did is we had a, a lot of stock of whiskey that we had produced. And so what we did was we, we applied for, there were two, well, there were several kinds of permits, but the two that, that people really talk about the most are a, a permit to produce whiskey and a permit to sell it. And so initially our permit was just to sell whiskey for medicinal purposes. And so we took our existing stock 
um, and primarily that was Old Forester. Um, we took that stock, and um, and that's that's what we used to to keep ourselves afloat. Um, then in 1923, we were able to purchase Early Times, um, and we brought on all of that whiskey stock because again we weren't able to produce it. All of our distilleries were closed or shuttered or you know, bars on windows. It's just like, you know, Boardwalk Empire, you see the, the government guy running around. It may not have been hopefully that violent, but I think it may have been actually. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we can't produce it. And so we're just like, okay, how can we, how can we keep going? So we, we purchased a, a great deal of uh, product from early times distillery. And then actually the location where I'm sitting today on 850 Dixie Highway in Louisville, Kentucky, is um, is the same location that we we purchased uh, two smaller distilleries, one called White Mills and one called Lindale, um, and that that became our headquarters in uh, 1924. So basically, we were since we couldn't produce, we had to we had to find some whiskey that we could um, then sell for medicinal purposes. Um, one thing that we were able to do is um, as Prohibition was starting to wane in the late 20s, um, and I think the U.S. government was realizing that this is a, a becoming a bit of a failed experiment. Um, mm-hmm. They uh, they allowed companies, and honestly, the existing companies, because a lot of companies, unfortunately, you know, fell by the wayside because they couldn't they couldn't you know they couldn't uh, live on what what they were living on before, um, and so we applied for a production license. Um, and I think we ended up being one of six who um, received those licenses. It wasn't, I think the myth is that there were only six to get, but there were only six that were given, let's put it that way. Um, and so we were able to produce um, whiskey um, in what's now called uh, Butchertown, Louisville, on a street called Story Avenue at an old um, distillery that doesn't exist anymore. But we, uh, we were able to get our, our stock back up as much as possible. Um, so that we could continue to to sell whiskey for medicinal purposes. Yeah, a, a lot of companies obviously were uh, in in the industries were diversifying or leveraging mm-hmm. investments that they had made. And uh, in speaking with uh, uh, Daniel Okrant, who uh, wrote the uh, uh, wrote the the book Last Call, which was uh, kind of an integral piece to uh, the Ken Burns documentary on Prohibition, uh, yeah. uh, maybe eight years ago or so. You know, he, he talked about um, that. That you know, obviously, first of all, you know, the country it's kind of as you kind of alluded to, never really went dry. Uh, It just went completely unregulated, uh, created a lot of disruption, obviously, for the industry and for companies, um, and also obviously undermined, you know, even more so, you know, safety regulation and and all those different you know aspects of um, the industry. but he also talked about, you know, that it was by design that, you know, when you kind of think about the amendment, you could – what it was prohibiting was manufacturing, selling, and transportation. It wasn't actually – you could actually technically still buy it um, because yeah. they wanted people to be able to out people. But um, – so it's kind of interesting how the how the law was designed. Um, but it mm-hmm. clearly – it clearly failed. Uh, <laughs> it clearly did not work. It did. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that it did. Yeah, <laughs> I well, I'd be here today. At the point that <laughs> I'd be selling Dan, something differently. Yeah, yeah right. You, well, you'd be selling medicine, but uh, you'd be in pharmaceutical yep. sales. <laughs> yeah, very but, um, but uh, 
Yeah, it was interesting. Daniel uh, da- Daniel made the point that sort of the perspective of these speakeasies and, you know, police officers, you know, busting these places wasn't at all how yeah. it was. It was all completely out in the open, uh, part- yeah. particularly in, in the big cities. And so the, the bigger... Uh, the bigger spirits industries were able to get through this. Obviously, it was very disruptive, um, but it you know it wasn't like even though they were having to produce and manufacture under the guise of things like medicine, um, it's not like really uh, that it ever really went away. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I'm curious: are there any uh, are there any sort of famous Brown Foreman myths of the Prohibition era that 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 you all talk about? Any uh, specific legends of the day? You know, nothing really from a, a like a myth standpoint. Um, one one interesting story I was thinking about um, sharing with you is um, our founder George Garvin Brown. Um, he was uh, a devout Christian. Um, he'd grown up a really really strong Christian, and um, you know, of course, part of the one of the main drivers in, in creating uh, prohibition was the temperance movement, um, starting you know in the late 1800s. Um, and so he knew that prohibition was, was coming. He didn't, I, I don't know that he ever thought it would, it would actually happen the way it did. In fact, like I said, at the beginning, he, um, he died three years before the nation went dry. Um, yeah. but he wrote a book, um, published a book called the Holy Bible repudiates prohibition. And mm-hmm. what he did was he was, you know, basically since there were all these, um, really strong, um, you know, basically the temperance movement was, was sort of led by really strong Christians and they were saying it's not a Christian thing to drink. Um, you know, he was basically saying, look, I'm a Christian and I can drink responsibly. Um, I'm not a fall down drunk. You don't have to be in order, you know, in order to drink or by drinking, but it make you a fall down drunk. Um, let me, let me cite, um, some scripture for you. And actually I'll just go ahead and write a whole book about it. Um, and so that book is, uh, it's, it's kind of a fun collector's item. I mean, it's definitely out there on eBay and in some, um, kind of small auction, um, worlds, but it's, it's not in print anymore. Um, I think we had actually thought about reprinting it when old Forrester opened up, but I'm not, I'm not sure if I'll ever do that again, but, um, it's a really, really interesting read. Um, and one of the things that I, I think is funny, um, just the George Garvin Brown was actually my great, great grandfather. Uh, yeah. so I am a descendant of his. Um, and, uh, the reason I'm an Episcopalian is because, um, Brown, um, his family, they were all Presbyterians and this is nothing against Presbyterians, but the Presbyterians were very, very much for prohibition and, yeah. uh, the Episcopalians, I guess, just didn't care. And so he left the Presbyterian church and joined the Episcopal church as a result. Um, and then the funny thing to me, at least I think it's funny and ironic, is now that we've we've rebuilt Old Forester on what's, what's kind of affectionately known as uh, Whiskey Row, which is Main Street in Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. Um, the back of our distillery is the back of the Presbyterian headquarters for the United States. <laughs> oh, so we so are funny. right back at right back with the Presbyterian. So. Um, it was just, uh, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a cool read if you can find it. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. And, you know, and sadly he, well, thankfully he didn't live to see the nation go dry, but um, I think he, he had a pretty good idea it was coming. 
Well, it sounds like it because he clearly uh, was uh, was uh, I- implementing a strategy that in, in today's world we would call thought leadership and content marketing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean yeah. it was published. We we we, we, and, we would call that a white paper. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Exactly. That's very very true. Yeah, yeah, you don't always have to publish your white papers. <laughs> Yeah, it's so funny. What uh, so? What are the, some of the other uh, what are the some of the other uh, fun plans that you all have uh, in store for Brown Foreman 150? Yeah, so lots of things. Um, so now that we've we've grown from this this little regional Louisville based company of you know a handful of people to about 4,700 strong worldwide, um, we we want it to be felt, we want the, the celebration and the milestone to be felt outside of just Louisville. Um, but uh, I, I am in Louisville and our, our, at our corporate headquarters, and so we've, we started um, kind of bannering the, the campus, and I think everyone's starting to feel a little bit of a sense of um, just excitement just, just by seeing something a little bit new and a little bit disruptive. Um, we have um, a series of eight videos that are going to come out um, this year, um, all on um, like our corporate ambition um, and our purpose, as well as our corporate values. Um, but while they'll, they'll be shown initially internally, they will live on our uh, brownformer.com site, uh, and they'll be cut down into shorter segments um, for our social media. So if you don't follow us, please do uh, follow us at, at Brown Foreman. Um, there's no hyphen and there's no E in Foreman. So uh, just B-R-O-W-N-F-O-R-M-A-N. Um, on Twitter and Instagram, um, we are doing a series of 150 stories that celebrate. And so um, lots of – we'll put out like three or four stories a week um, that will go the, in, the length of the entire year. And um, – the, one of the biggest pieces that we've, we've produced is a book. Um, we partnered with Azaline in New York City to produce a, a beautiful image-heavy coffee table book, about 250 pages, and um, it's going to be a, a really nice piece. Every employee in the company will receive one. Um, it's not going to be for sale, uh, since a lot of people don't realize who Brown Foreman is outside of talking about our brand. We realized we didn't necessarily need to put this on the bookshelves. Although my my new role is now brand manager of the Brown Foreman brand, so I'll have to start working on ways to brand ourselves outside of just our brands. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, it's a uh, it's it's a really exciting time to be to be at Brown Foreman. It's um, like I said before, it's, I think the future is a lot brighter, or feeling a lot brighter at 150 than it probably was in 1920 as we were celebrating our 50th. Um, as prohibition was coming into play, um, we don't we don't see anything there. There certainly are some uh, some impediments and some things in our in our way, but that that's always going to be the case in a highly regulated industry. But um, uh, we're we're excited to be where we are, and um, yeah, excited to be celebrating um, our 150th. Well, that's awesome, and you know, I know Brown, Brown Foreman has such a rich heritage and so many amazing brands and an incredible rich archives to pull those stories out. I always like to ask, yeah. what's one of your favorite stories? Like if you were uh, at a at a cocktail lounge and had one great Brown Foreman story to tell, what might it be? So I was actually right before um, right before coming uh, to talk to you, I was at a lunch. Um, that one of our employee resource groups, um, it's called Sage, um, put on, and they every January they do a, a lunch and learn uh, called Back in the Day, 
and they will um, they'll invite retired Brown Foreman employees and executives to come back and just kind of talk about their time at, at BF. And so the Brown Foreman Archive has been a really big um, supporter of theirs just because we've been able to kind of help them with content and, and get some questions together. And so that's, that's been a cool way that we've been involved with that group. But I just heard um, kind of a funny story. I mean, a lot of times companies will only talk about their successes, right? Like what's made them successful and why they are who they are. But, um, you know, we have, for every success we have, we have probably have like 10 failures. Um, and one of our biggest flops was we decided to get into fish farming. Um, and um, it was, so in the 80s and 90s, um, bourbon and brown spirits were on the decline. Vodka was re really on the rise, and we, we didn't have a vodka at the time. Um, and, uh, and so we were trying to diversify and trying to, to figure out ways that we could, you know, kind of like prohibition, how are we going to, how are we going to keep our name running and how are we going to stay afloat? Um, also knowing full well that, that trends are cyclical and that bourbon would someday come back. And of course, right now we found ourselves in a really nice place and like a bourbon boom, but we, uh, we decided to invest in fish farms because we had, um, kind of this, we had this whole experimental farm thing going on where we were, um, and we still do this, we were selling our spent mash or our spent grain um, after the distillation process to farmers and realized that cows um, and horses and, and other kind of farm animals could really um, uh, benefit from, from the nutrients that were found in our, our spent mash. Um, and so we decided to try this with fish farms and we started off with a small tank of about 5,000 gallons, and then it grew to, I heard, 25,000 gallons. And then at one point, we, we poured like $15 million into this um, experimental fish farm, and we thought that this was going to be this, you know, the next best thing. Well, within like two weeks, somehow something happened, and we, never, we didn't oxygenate the, the water properly and like all the fish were gone. And that was basically the end of the, uh, the fish farms. And so it's just, uh, it's, it's so weird to think that Brown Foreman, you know, owners and makers of Jack Daniels would, would have gotten into something as random as that, but you know, you gotta, you gotta try it all, I guess, to, to figure out what, what works. Unfortunately, yeah. um, we lost, we lost some fish in the process. So there's, there's, there's gotta be a, there's got to be a bad joke in there somewhere, but uh, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> a few that, that came out for sure, but it was, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. I'm, Maybe I'm a little, a, lo learning. a little whiskey in the water. <laughs> yeah, could be. You never know. I mean, it always say it cures what ails you. I mean, that's how we got into this business, right? But apparently, it doesn't do much for fish. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, well, as yeah. as we know, everything in moderation. So. <laughs> yes. Indeed. Yes. Indeed. Yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah. Awesome. Well, Macaulay, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, congrats again yeah, on Brown Performance 150th. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, we'll stay in touch and talk again soon. So we'll touch base later on all the right. year and see how the 150th is going. Well, and I have to say thank you for all that you all have done with uh, with helping us get our archive started, working with you guys for nearly two decades. Um, we, we really wouldn't be where we are. We wouldn't be as prepared for our 150th without your uh your support and your help. So we appreciate um, the partnership and excited to have a chance to, to chat with you today. Thanks, so Macaulay. Thanks. We'll talk soon. Absolutely. Take cool. care.
So as we've learned today, prohibition was not so effective. Ironically, a policy that was championed on the grounds of morality actually was a catalyst for more corruption and creating more dangerous products in the marketplace. Prohibition created a pay-to-play environment between the private and public sector, with businesses paying off law enforcement and public officials, and it certainly made the ability of quality inspection of alcoholic products far more difficult. As is almost always the case, people with means and access to resources were far less inconvenienced than those with less. But although prohibition did not temper Americans' appetite for drink as the temperance movement aimed, it did hurt the industry. Smaller saloons in more rural environments or without the means to pay off the law were forced to close, as were smaller breweries, distilleries, and winemakers. Breweries like Yingling, which dates back to the 1820s, Miller to the 1850s, and Anheuser-Busch to the 1860s, began producing products like ice cream, sodas, and non-alcoholic malt beverages referred to as near beer, which I guess were the predecessor of non-alcoholic beer. These long-standing established businesses also depended on other investments, as Macaulay said her family did, to keep Brown Foreman going. In the wine industry, winemakers began selling dehydrated grape bricks with, quote, warnings that specifically instructed consumers not to leave their watered-down grape concentrate in containers for 20 days or longer, otherwise it would become wine. The demand for grapes subsequently skyrocketed, and by 1924, the price for grapes was a staggering $375 per ton, which was a nearly 4,000% increase from the pre-prohibition price of $9.50. Proponents of prohibition had argued a liquorless economy would also strengthen other industries like gum, juice, and soda. Coca-Cola had branded itself as the great temperance drink as early as the 1890s when it first came out in an attempt to position it as the virtuous alternative to alcohol. Of course, considering what was actually in Coca-Cola back in those days, that is especially ironic. I think an overlooked aspect of the Prohibition story is the xenophobia that anti-alcohol crusaders capitalized on. They used the anti-German sentiment of World War I to fuel perceptions that America's largely German brewing industry was a threat. One temperance politician argued, quote, We have German enemies in this country, and the worst of all our German enemies, the most treacherous, the most menacing, are Pabst, Schlitz, Blatz, and Miller. Also, incidentally, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s paralleled the Prohibition era. The KKK was Prohibition, while at the same time, of course, being anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, and racist. In southern Illinois in 1923 and 1924, for instance, the KKK mobilized raids in saloons and roadhouses that resulted in hundreds of arrests and a dozen deaths. And just as xenophobia helped usher in the era of the 18th Amendment, resistance against it helped repeal it. Because minorities and more marginalized Americans were the disproportionate victims of prohibition, they responded by becoming more politically active and joined the Democratic Party. And of course, as always, money was a factor. As the country began to enter the Great Depression, prohibition's impact on employment ended up being one of the primary arguments for repealing the 18th Amendment. And the government needed revenue. So in 1932, FDR promised to end prohibition as part of his platform, and he stayed true to his word. The 21st Amendment, which repealed the 18th Amendment, shifted alcohol regulation from the federal government to the states. But in some areas, prohibition didn't end until years after the 21st Amendment was ratified. Mississippi, for example, remained alcohol-free until 1966, 
33 years after the passage of the 21st Amendment. And today, 10 states still contain counties where alcohol sales are prohibited. And although making beer and wine within your home for personal use is legal, making liquor in your bathtub is still a federal crime. So be careful when you make that bathtub gin. For many of us, the concept of the prohibition of alcohol in America probably seems so foreign and of a time that could never happen today. But when you unpack some of these underlying factors, it suddenly feels quite familiar, doesn't it? That's our show today. Thanks so much again to Daniel Okren and Macaulay Adams for joining us. I'm Jason Dressel, and stay tuned for our next episode of History Factory Plugged In in a couple of weeks. Cheers. Cheers.